Father, we've sung that we want to follow you with every aspect of our lives. And Lord, that's easier to say than it is to do. And we thank you, Father, for your life-giving word, uh, for the way that you reveal your heart to us and your will to us. We thank you for your spirit who enables us and equips us to actually live a life which pleases you. Uh, We thank you now for this time in the scriptures and pray that uh, you would penetrate our hearts and our minds and our souls so deeply that our vision and our understanding of you would be enlarged and we would love you more and you'd equip us to do what we've just sung to to follow you always. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Uh, Please take a seat and please uh, grab your Bibles and turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's on page 816. If you haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm the pastor here. And you've joined us a good week. We're kicking off a a new uh, five-week series. Uh, Just to let you know what's going on in my head, uh, we've got the 125-year anniversary in five weeks' time. The Archbishop's here for two weeks to preach to us. Uh, And I thought we'd spend these five weeks really... Understanding again that the glory of the gospel, the best way that we will be equipped for that one, two, five week to, to preach Christ and proclaim Christ is if we love Jesus more and if we've understood again how magnificent Jesus is and what it really means to, to live as a Christian. And so we're going to look through uh, 2 Corinthians 1 to 5. Uh, just before uh, Maria reads that passage to us, uh, 2 Corinthians is actually the, the fourth letter uh, that Paul wrote. He wrote a letter that's been lost, and then he wrote another letter, which is our 1 Corinthians, and then he wrote another letter, which has also been lost, and then he wrote a fourth letter, which is called 2 Corinthians. Uh, Corinth is a city uh, very similar to Sydney. It was cosmopolitan, it was wealthy. Uh, In Corinth, you'd have a massive theatre that would seat about 18,000 people, You'd have sports stadiums all over the place. It was a center for, for sex. There's about a thousand prostitutes in Corinth. It was a top tourist destination. Corinth was a place where you would go to have fun and to enjoy life. And Paul visits Corinth uh, and he preaches the gospel to this, this, uh, these people in Corinth and he spends 18 months in Corinth. And he leaves after 18 months and he leaves behind a small church but a strong church. But let me ask you this question. What happens when you are a church surrounded by clubs and theatres and sporting worlds and people just telling you to enjoy life? What happens when you're a church which is being infiltrated by new teachers teaching a new message and the new message says God wants you to enjoy life and to have fun. God wants you to be successful. Uh, Following Jesus is all about fun and success. There'll be no trials in life and no troubles in life. What happens when you've been fed that sort of teaching week in, week out? I tell you what happens. Uh, the message of Christ crucified and the simple message of a cross and the simple message of sins forgiven, it, it suddenly becomes a bit dull because you're being promised so much more. And that's the situation in Corinth, a church living in the world with all its temptations, but being fed this lie that living the Christian life is easy and living the Christian life is fun. And so Paul writes to them, and we've got it in front of us in 2 Corinthians. It's probably his most personal letter, certainly the most emotional letter that he writes. 
look at one verse with me. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4. He says, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. You see, friends, if you invest time in people, and if you give your heart and your soul to people, and your desire for them and their longing for them is that they know Christ, and if you hear about those same people and they've walked away from Christ, then your heart aches. And if you've given your whole energy and time and emotions to people, and those very same people start to slander you and start to ask questions about you and your integrity, then, then your heart breaks. And that's kind of the, the heart of Paul writing this letter. He loves these people. He's distressed to see them wandering away from Christ. He's distressed to see the glory of Christ being diminished by these wrong teachers that are coming to the church. And so he writes a letter to them. And that's why I'm teaching this book. Because we need to be reminded that the Christian life is not all about fun. And it's not all about success. It's not about having it easy. And we need to be reminded of the glory of Jesus Christ and be gripped by that. And be blown away by Christ so that we will live for him and share the good news with others and honor his name. So I'm going to invite Maria up to read chapter 1 to us. Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patience, patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Do not, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the, in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to the, the worldly wisdom but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope 
that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to you to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly or do I, did I make plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I might say yes, yes and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it was always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you with your, with, for, our jo- for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad for who, but, but you whom I've grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I have confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know of the depth of my love for you. Let me ask you a question. What, what is your expectation of the Christian life? What do you expect it's going to be like to, to follow Jesus? Uh, there's a song that uh, some churches sing. It's got this line in it. In your presence, our problems disappear. And in your presence, Jesus, all our problems disappear. Is that true? Is that reality? Is that what the Bible teaches? If you follow Jesus, your life will be sweet and it will be successful and it will be happy and it will be joyful. Is that your expectation of what it means to follow Jesus? You see, that's what these new teachers in Corinth were teaching. That's what many churches in this city teach. Come to Jesus and life will be nice and easy. And I keep meeting many Christians who are disappointed with God because the easy life they were promised never materialized. And that's why I love the Apostle Paul, because he's just so real and so honest. He never denies what he's feeling. He never denies what he's going through. Uh, with Paul, there's none of the what I call the, the car park transformation. Let me explain. You know, you're having a really tough day. You're frustrated. You're angry. You're having a row with your husband or a row with your wife. And it's like 4.30 at night and you get in the car to drive to church and you're rowing all the way to church and then you park the car, you close the car door, you turn up at church and you go, hi, how are you? Nice to see you. I'm well, thank you. How are you doing? And it's all fake. And it's not real. Uh, with Paul, you know exactly what he's feeling. Look at chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. Uh, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. 
so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. This is the, the great church planter, the great Christian leader speaking. Is he talking about happiness? No, he's talking about suffering. He says we're under great pressure, of verse 8. Uh, literally, I felt weighed down like, like a, a ship, and the load is so heavy that you're almost banking the ship. You're almost coming to a standstill because you're that, that weighed down. Uh, far beyond our ability to endure, he says in verse 8. Uh, we felt as though there was nowhere out, no way out. We felt as though uh, we were at the end of our tether. I was utterly, utterly crushed. In fact, I felt as though I was about to die. Uh, verse 9, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. Like the jaws of death was, it were surrounding him. It's almost like the death sentence has been passed. He said, this is it. Life is tough. And you sense that the desperation, do you sense the weight of his suffering? He's kind of like paralyzed. And you know, in God's wisdom, he, doesn't, he never tells us exactly what the situation was for Paul. It could have been a physical illness, the, the thorn in the flesh that he talks about later on. It t- could be that he was imprisoned in a dirty, smelly, cold, rat-infested jail. It could have been that he was being attacked. Or be, we, don't, we don't know. And that's good news. Because we can't say, oh, that was Paul. What Paul went through, any Christian can go through. Paul is actually one of the most afflicted men who ever lived. I'll just read some verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 23, he says, I've been in prison more frequently, I've been flogged more severely, I've been exposed to death again and again. And five times I received from the Jews of 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger from false brothers, in danger at sea, etc., etc., etc. And that is the great Christian leader. His life wasn't sweet. His life wasn't full of happiness and success and fun. Why? Because he preached Christ. Because he proclaimed the gospel. And friends, if you're going to preach Christ and you're going to proclaim the gospel and you're going to live for Jesus in a world that hates Jesus, you will face suffering and you will face troubles and you will face trials. And that's the backdrop to this book. Look at uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. The expectation is that we will face troubles. I've used that word deliberately. The expectation is. Not the possibility, but the expectation is that if you are living for Christ and you are preaching Christ, you will face troubles in life and troubles in the world. See, Paul's troubles weren't money troubles. He left all that behind. And Paul's troubles weren't relationship troubles. And it wasn't housing problems. It wasn't job troubles. Paul's troubles, if you want, was that he was being persecuted and he was being afflicted and he was being beaten and he was being mocked. Why? Because he was boldly preaching Christ. You know, his preaching led to persecution and pain and his hard work and selfless decisions led to a trouble called tardiness. But that's okay. That's what it meant to follow Jesus. Listen to his, com- his commission as you want. 
Acts chapter 9. It's on the screen. But the Lord said to Ananias, this is at his conversion, said to Paul, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's what it meant to follow Jesus and to preach Jesus. And you might say, oh, that's just the Apostle Paul. No. I could list every disciple, every great Christian leader, and they've all faced troubles and suffering for preaching Christ. It's funny. We all know in Sydney the verse 2 Timothy 3.16. You know, all scripture is God-breathed and used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we like that verse. Just three verses before comes another verse. It says this. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But we don't like that verse so much, do we? Friends, don't be surprised when troubles come. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That's what Paul says here. Verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. The sufferings of Jesus flow into your life and to my life. We do suffer in similar ways. If your faith is genuine and you're preaching Christ, we expect to suffer. But that's not what the world teaches. And it's not what many churches teach. So before we launch into this passage, and I'm just going to look at just three verses tonight. Before we launch into this passage, how do you view troubles that come your way? Because you're a Christian. Maybe I should rephrase that question. Do troubles come your way because you're a Christian? I'm not talking about normal sufferings in life, like ill health or sickness or job worries. I'm talking about troubles that come because you are standing up for Christ and as we've just sung, with our whole life following him. Let me give you two things. Firstly, the experience of God's comfort the experience of God's comfort. God comforts us in all of our troubles. That's the thrust of these verses. It's all about a God who is full of comfort. That word comfort appears ten times in just four verses. Uh, Paul takes a Jewish blessing in, in verse 3 and he Christianizes it. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now why is God praiseworthy? What is it about God that he's praising? He is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. He's the father, literally, of full of mercy and the God of all comfort, the God who strengthens and encourages you and stands by you and holds you. It's the God who's always been revealing himself throughout the Bible. Isaiah 40, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Isaiah 66 is on the screen. Isaiah 66, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You'll be comforted in Jerusalem. The word comfort is a picture of a mother who is tenderly embracing and holding on to her children. Have ever, you ever, ever had that experience? Remember back to, your, to your, your childhood days and you're in pain and you're in agony and you run to mum. And your mum is there because she listens to you and she cries with you and she might hold you. And even when mum can't give you any answers or any solutions, 
just being in her presence and trusting that she loves you. That's a comfort. And that's a picture of, of our God who knows us intimately, who knows what we're going through, and even if there's no solutions and no answers, he embraces and holds. He's also like a father. Psalm 103, again on the screen. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Again, it's a picture of a father who, who's, you just long to take away the pain of your child, and you do anything to, to take away the pain. That's God. That's the God that Paul preached. The God of, look at that word in verse 3, spot the word of all comfort, who comforts us in, in all our troubles. Not some of our troubles, but every trouble that you will go through, you can trust that God will comfort you. Now think about who's writing this. As Paul experienced the 40 lashes minus one, he knew the comfort of God. As Paul was stoned, he knew the comfort of God. As Paul was shipwrecked amongst high seas, he still knew the comfort of God. Paul's knowledge of God was so intimate that he knew that his God is a God of compassion and a God of all comfort. And friends, there's nothing that we can go through that God is not aware of and God's not able to comfort you in and not longing to comfort you in. But that comfort only comes through Christ. Uh, did you spot that in verse 5? Uh, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. It's through Christ. He's the channel that God uses to, to bring you the comfort. Without Christ, there is no comfort. But with Christ, you can know how precious you are and how redeemed you are and what a great father you have. And that comfort, the word is overflows or literally erupts. It's a bit like having a fountain. You know when you've got a fountain and the water's bursting everywhere and you just can't avoid it. You don't want to get wet, but you just can't avoid getting wet. And it's kind of like if you're in Christ... You may try and run away from the comfort, but you can't avoid it because he'll hold on to you and he will comfort you. How do you experience that comfort? Paul learned a very simple truth. It's not rocket science. It's there in verse 9. See, he felt the sentence of death. And what did he do? Verse 9, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Let me read that again. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Because, friends, if you focus on yourself, and if you focus on your troubles, and if you focus on the issues and the sufferings you're going through, all that will happen is you'll have a, your own little pity party. And you'll sit there and you'll say, woe is me, my life is so hard, my life is so tough. But when you learn utter dependence on God, and shift focus away from self and onto your saviour and onto the God of all comfort, you're reminded of his presence, his peace, his mercy, his goodness, his sovereignty, his tenderness, his compassion, his power, his desire to refine you, his promise of glory. You can depend on him. That's the comfort. He holds your life in his mighty hand. And he is the God, verse 9, who does what? Who, who raises the dead. If God can raise the dead, then he can comfort you. If God is powerful enough to take a dead person and bring them back to life, he's powerful enough to bring you comfort in whatever trial or trouble you're going through. That's Paul's hope. 
He says in verse 10, he delivered us from such deadly perils. Again, we don't know how, but he did. And he will deliver us. That's the confidence of God's the God who delivers. And on him, we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Friends, when the troubles come, when the suffering comes, you'll go one or two ways. Either you'll run far, far, far away from God or you'll run into the arms of a, of a mother and a father who's waiting to embrace you and comfort you. I hear, again, I hear it again and again. You know, It was in the depth of my despair that I learned utter dependence on God. Someone said to me even this week, God wanted to teach me to trust him more. And personally, you know, I've never experienced the comfort of the Holy Spirit in such a powerful way as to when my life hit rock bottom. That's the time when he humbles me enough to be utterly dependent on him and to trust in his goodness and his presence and his security and his peace. It's true of my life. I'm hoping it's true of your life. It's true of the most, most of the great Christian leaders. Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great Christian preacher, suffered massive, massive depressions. John Owen, John Calvin, John Newton, Martin Luther, all persecuted for their faith, and yet they had such an intimacy with God because they knew the comfort of him. Is that how you view your troubles? Or do you just slip into resentment, sort of, why me when life's not fair? Or do you throw yourselves into the arms of a loving father? The experience of God's comfort. But you know, friends, the reason that God comforts you is not just about you. The reason God takes you through your trials and your troubles is not about you. If you have experienced the comfort of God and that deep intimacy with God, the reason, or one of the reasons God's done that is so that you, listen carefully, so that you can then comfort other people. God comforts us so that then we can be a comfort to others. It's the expectation that, that you will comfort other people. Now look again at verse 4. He's praising the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. Why? What's the purpose? Look at verse 4. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So someone who's gone through the suffering, someone who's gone through the trials, knows how to offer comfort to other people. And that's why he can say in verse 6, if we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If they're distressed, they can learn about the reality of suffering, the reality of life, and that will bring comfort. But if we're comforted, that's for your comfort, because we can sit with you, we can cry with you, we can listen to you, and we can share the comfort of God with you. That's the way that comfort works. It, it's not a one-way street. Stop being selfish. You know, God doesn't flood you with his comfort uh, so that you can just sit there and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. God floods you with his comfort, so yes, you can say thank you, but then you can be a channel of comfort to other people. It's like a tidal wave that comes in and goes back out again. God floods you with comfort and God breathes comfort into you so that you can breathe comfort into others. Do you want to see how it works? Just flick over to chapter 7. One page, chapter 7, verse 6. For God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Titus comforted Paul, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. See, the Corinthians comforted Titus. He's told us about your longing for me, your deep joy, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me. So my joy was greater than ever. See, 
The Corinthians comforted Titus, Titus comforted Paul, and Paul in turn wants to comfort the Corinthians. That's how it works. It's like a cycle. You see the comfort of God working in this, cycl- in this cyclic way. It's the most extraordinary example. Uh, you might have heard of um, a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anyone ever heard of him? He's a German uh, theologian, evangelical Christian. He was in a Nazi uh, camp, and he was suffering persecution. And his love for God was so strong, and his confidence in God was so strong. And he wrote a series of letters that were published. He read a, a poem that he gave to his fiance at the time. Her name was Maria. Uh, the poem is called New Year uh, 1945. This is the poem. It's on the screen. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain, at thy command we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that's given by thy loving hand. A beautiful reminder that God gives everything and God takes away. And that was a great comfort to Maria especially when three months later Bonhoeffer was hanged for his faith. Come forward 18 years, other side of the world in America, and another fiancé is grieving because her fiancé has been killed in a tragic accident. And someone gives her this poem to read, and she finds massive comfort from it. And so she gives this poem to the parents of the dead fiancé, and they find massive comfort in it, and they keep this poem come forward a further 12 years and these same parents of the man who, was died, who died meet a woman who's terminally ill and they give her this poem as an encouragement and a comfort and the woman turns around and says yes I've read that before it was written for me my name is Maria I was engaged to the man who wrote it and you see how God just takes a little thing like that and he uses it down the centuries down the ages in different countries around the world and God does that with Christians you know God takes Christians like you and me and takes us through trials and takes us through troubles so we can experience the the comfort of God and then he places us in the lives of other people so that we can comfort them through what we've learned through our troubles and our trials. Let me speak very personally. I'm single, 39 years of age and there's been times where it's been really hard but God has comforted me in that and God has taught me lots in that. And God has taught me what it means to be content. And you know what? Uh, I've lost count of the number of times I've sat with people and listened to people who are struggling with singleness. And I think I've been able to comfort them through the comfort that God has shown me. I want to encourage you, friends, to think of the ways that God has comforted you in your trials, the way he's refined you, what he's taught you, what he's taught you about himself. And don't hold on to it. Look around you and think, how can I use that to comfort other people? See, why, why are we slow in comforting others? Think about that question. Why are we slow in comforting other people? It could be because, you know, we just want to keep all God's comfort for ourselves. We're just contorted. We just want our relationship with God. But I think it's this. I think we're good at the car park transformation. <laughs> I think we're good at coming to church and putting it on the facade. And we're not willing to be really vulnerable with people. And we're not willing to admit to people the troubles and the pain and the heartache that we're going through. 
And if people don't know what we're struggling with and the trouble we're going through, how can they offer us any comfort in the time? Or maybe we're just selfish and people do acknowledge all the, co- all the struggle they're going through, but we just walk away rather than sitting and listening and showing them the comfort that God offers. And my prayer is that at this simple point that in the midst of your trials, God will comfort you so that you will comfort others might transform this congregation. Whatever you're going through, you won't run away from God, you'll run into his arms and remind yourself of his character. And as you do that, God will give you many, many opportunities to share that comfort with other people. Let me pray. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Father, we thank you for your mercy, your strength, your wisdom, your goodness, your kindness. Thank you for the way that you refine us through our sufferings and our troubles. Lord, I pray that we would run to you for comfort. Know and experience your comfort. That our intimacy and our dependence on you would grow. And then use us mightily to to share with others and to cry with others and to point others to Christ, the source of all our comfort. And we ask that for Jesus' sake.